And let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Psalm 34. We're just taking a little summer break from our study of the pastoral epistles. We will, Lord willing, get back to those pastoral epistles in September as we start the new so the new school year, as it were, for our church. But for the summer, I want to spend some time in the Psalms with you and uh, come especially here to uh, my family psalm, the one I was raised in, the one I learned uh, from my mother and memorized with her, and one that is precious to me, but also just in the providence of God is where we happen to be in our study. So that's why we're here. Psalm 34, you'll find it on page 547 of the Pew Bible if you're using that. Once you become a Christian, probably the biggest ongoing battle you will face in your life is the battle to trust God. This is the battle that dominates the lives of Scripture's greatest characters, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Ruth, and David, just to name a few. Their lives were all about trusting God. Ruth left everything to go be a beggar in God's promised land. Abraham left his family and his clan and went to a land he did not know in the promise that on one distant day it would be his inheritance. Moses, when he was called to lead, was eaten up by fear and reservations and God had to repeatedly call him into service and provide him even with miracles to bolster his faith. Fear and doubt, fear and doubt are probably the biggest, most constant struggles we face as believers. Not only that, but have you ever stopped to think about and realize that most of your other sins are rooted in fear as well? For example, have you ever noticed how much of your sinful anger is actually about sinful fear? We blow up at our spouse or our sibling or our child because they let us down. But deep down in our hearts, the real issue is fear. We're terrified to fail as parents, so we lash out and yell at our kids hoping to make a difference. We're terrified that our marriage would fail. And so instead of loving and serving, we lash out in anger. Now, of all the fear struggles, all the fear struggles in Scripture, and all the fear strugglers in Scripture, David seems to me to have struggled the most fully and to have written about it most brilliantly. David's life was incredibly stressful. He began life as a shepherd, guarding animals in an unpredictable wilderness, laying himself out under the stars. Then he spent his young years fighting giants, dodging his maniacal father-in-law, King Saul, who, by the way, took his wife from him and poisoned his only close friendship with Jonathan. And then, and then when America's Most Wanted, that section of his life was over, he had to run, run a country, a kingdom that was relatively small and surrounded by much larger vindictive enemies, not to mention all of the jealous traitors and assassins that came at him from within the nation of Israel. So yes, David knew fear. 
And as God always does, the fear was not wasted in his life. God used David's extreme life to wring out of him by the Spirit the most wonderful words of praise and trust that can be found in anyone other than Christ himself. All this you see, all this that he went through, forced David to realize and preach a message that usually only comes to us in our elderly years. David taught that trust and praise only come into our lives when we despair of ourselves. When we stop magnifying ourselves and throw ourselves unreservedly on the Lord, only then will we know peace. To use a hymn we often sing, so long, so long as any other trust intrudes, so long as we're trusting in anything else, we will never feel secure. And this is what so many of the Psalms are about. This is why he called God his rock, why he wrote about God's wings covering him. He is a shield, says David. He is the one in whom we hope. We wait for him like one waits for the dawn. And all this inspired countless songs and prayers. The Psalms, the Psalms have long been the worship manual of the church in every age. To give just one example, it was the constant emphasis on God as our refuge that inspired Martin Luther many years ago to write, a more mighty fortress is our God. David is constantly telling us that God is a refuge, and not just one of many, but the only sure refuge for our frightened and fidgety lives and hearts. If you're trusting in anything else, it will fail you, and it will make you sick with worry. What's more, that thing you are trusting in will become your glory, your pride, taking you even farther away from God and from rest. Psalm 34 is among the greatest psalms of trust. Trust in God alone. Let's read it together and learn from it. Please stand as we read God's word. I'll read today verses 1 through 10. Our introduction says, Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for, there, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we have come then to taste and see that the Lord is good. 
to turn away from all our other trusts, all our other boasts, and to boast only in you, and to receive from you what you only can give. So we do present ourselves today as empty and needy and fearful, and we come to you and we ask you, Father, by your word and through your Holy Spirit to strengthen us in worship and in praise and to open to us this scripture. We thank you for what David endured for our sakes, that we might learn from him. We pray now that we would learn from him and that you would strengthen us in this psalm and through this psalm. And we ask it in the name of the great psalm singer, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 34 can be broken down into two halves, two big sections. The first half, verses 1 through 10, we could call David's testimony, his testimony. Uh, David, in those verses 1 through 10, rejoices in what God has done in his life, and he rehearses the events that led up to the writing of the psalm, and he urges Israel, whenever you're given a testimony, I think you do this, You urge the people who are listening, fellow believers, to join in the praise and to follow you, to start trusting themselves more fully in God because of what has happened to you, and at all times to praise him, even and especially in the worst moments of life. Then the second section, verses 11 through 22, uh, he instructs the congregation on how they can fully experience this joy by walking with God and understanding God's ultimate plan. This is where the psalm begins to sound a little bit like a proverb. Real quickly, we won't spend time here today, but you can look at verse 11, and you can see this instruction motif come out. It sounds like the book of Proverbs when he writes, Come, O children, Listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So first half testimony, second half instruction. But what really starts it all, what really sets the whole thing going is verses 1 through 3. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you can see the ESV has set that aside as sort of the first stanza. There's an indentation there to let you know that. And that's going to be our focus this morning as we prepare to come to the table, really verses 1 through 3. Let me read those for you again. David writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. First, David starts the psalm by committing himself to a lifestyle, a lifestyle of praise from this point onward. Verse 1 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continue, it shall remain in my mouth. Of course, David had praised God before this. This wasn't his first psalm. But now he seems to rededicate himself to an ongoing pattern of praise in all the seasons of life. Now, if you're wondering, if you're wondering, how can someone make that kind of commitment? Isn't that kind of unrealistic to praise the Lord all the time? Well, I think the book of Psalms itself, 
the huge number of psalms that David has written, these witness to the fact that David did indeed do this, that he continued in praise all through his life. These are not just empty words then, but words that actually help to create the book of Psalms, the Psalter that you have in your hands this morning. Now, why would David, why would David suddenly aspire to this new life of constant praise? I think the heading of the psalm can help us. David wrote this psalm after what might have been the most dangerous period in his life. And that is saying something. The short of it is this. David had received from his covenant friend Jonathan a signal by means of an arrow. And the signal meant that Saul the king, Jonathan's father, David's king, meant to kill him, meant to put him to death. Despite being the hero of Israel's battles, slaying Goliath, and being just over and all a servant to Saul, yet Saul hated David and saw him as a threat. This left David with nowhere to go and no one he could fully trust. In desperation, he flees to a priest. You heard that reading from Elder Boyajan. He flees to a priest who feeds him the holy bread, the bread of the presence, and gives him Goliath's sword. In an act of total desperation, David then goes to Gath, which is Goliath's hometown, carrying, remember, Goliath's sword. While there, he assumes he'll be killed, but he has no choices, so he goes there. So he pretends to be a madman, a hugely humbling experience. And the king there, Abimelech or Achish, keeps him, but then eventually lets him go. Apparently, the stunt in Gath bought him just enough time to regroup and escape once again, this time to a cave. This psalm rejoices in God's protection through this whole phase of life when he so easily could have been executed. And this amazing deliverance has prompted him to commit himself anew to a lifetime of continual praise. And I think something like this should also happen to us, to you, shouldn't it? As we reflect on God's salvation of each one of us and how unlikely and unworthy we are to receive it, it should create in us a desire to live a life marked by continual, unceasing praise. We, like David, were caught between a rock and a hard place. The law of God threatened to kill us, and our human nature was no help. Our choice was Saul, the raging lunatic king who wanted our blood, or Gath, the enemies who also wanted our blood. But in our terrible desperation, our incredible desperation, God delivered us through his son. Now, we are not to forget that. We're not to forget that or lose sight of that ever. We are meant to live our Christian lives in the vivid reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And from that, to give constant thanks to him. Of course, there will be times, let me be clear, there will be times of immense weakness and mourning. The Bible shows that on, us, that on many occasions, and David did at times mourn and weep and write these wonderful psalms of despair. But even suffering, even suffering, should never fully remove from us the joy of what God has done for us 
in our weakness. If you've had the privilege, if you've had the privilege of waiting beside the bed of a dying Christian, and it is a glorious thing to do, by the way, hard but glorious. If you've had that privilege, then you have seen this. The chemotherapy can take everything, but it cannot take that spark. You can see it. You can often hear it. The joy of that person's salvation cannot be totally taken from them. God has given it, and nothing of the mere earth can wrench it free. And so, yes, it will look different at different times. But David speaks for all believers here when he says that God's praise will never be out of the mouth and heart of a truly redeemed person. They will never get over it. We will never get over it. In fact, it might have been this very psalm that was on Paul's mind as he encourages New Testament believers in this way. Quote, address one another, he says, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. These are persecuted Christians. Make melody to the Lord in your heart, giving thanks always, he writes, and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his intense trial and his absolute dependence in it, God has renewed in David a desire to live from now on in a spirit of praise. Whatever else may be happening, and days of mourning will come for David, yet the word of praise would also forever be in his mouth. His life was changed. His mouth was changed as he reflected on the magnitude of God's love and salvation for him at the most desperate moment of his life. Second of all, in verse 2, David says that the song, the song in his mouth, has also changed his heart, his trust. He writes, verse 2, My soul now makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. This experience has helped David to reset, and we need this sometimes. We need this sometimes. It has helped him to reset where his confidence is. We may not think of ourselves as confident. Some of us do. Some of us don't. But the reality is that you cannot function in life without a certain amount of confidence. Just like you have to worship something, so also it's inevitable you have to trust something in life. It's just the way it is. David's experience helped to change his heart by moving his confidence from himself more fully to God alone. In other words, instead of crediting himself with his deliverance, this whole experience has caused him to boast in God, to acknowledge God as the only one who really is in control. After all, after all, all he could do was wander around and act like a madman and hope that no one killed him. He was completely vulnerable and exposed in every way. Here then in verse 2, you see, we have the gospel, don't we? The gospel according to David in verse 2. God saves his people in a way, in a way that is designed to teach them dependence. 
that causes them to boast in God alone. And that's why David adds, the humble, the weak, the empty, the needy will hear about this. They'll hear about how God saved me and it will cause them to rejoice. Such a God-centered message will be like cold water on a summer day to the humble and the needy. They will hear and be glad, but the proud, the proud and self-reliant will never acknowledge or seek God's help. They're too busy trusting themselves. When things go well in our lives, we tend to credit ourselves or even someone else who helps us and we care about them. But the humble and needy person, the empty person, is the person out of options. We often refer to David as the man after God's own heart. That description comes from God himself. He is the one who said that. But what we need to always remember when we say that is that David becomes that by the grace of God alone. The first stanza then is a call to worship. Verses 1 through 3 are a call to worship that will appeal only to people who, like David, have been at the end of their strength. The needy will hear about this amazing escape and recognize that God was behind it and that he can save them as well. They will hear David's boast in God and they will rejoice. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 is one of the most quotable places in the Old Testament. In these two verses, the prophet Jeremiah uses this word boast five times when he writes, Thus saith the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let them boast, those who boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. And no doubt thinking of this, Paul in Ephesians 2 wrote those memorable words, for by grace, by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that for the purpose that no one may boast. Just as you must worship something in life, so you must boast in something in life. I think Martin Luther was right when he said that the whole center of the Christian life is a faith that despairs of self and boasts in God. Luther was upset with the Roman Catholic Church because they had set up a system of works that allowed for boasting. That was his concern. In doing so, in doing so, in giving a system of grace instead of a sovereign God of grace, the church was accidentally maybe, but still sabotaging the very work of God which is meant to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we can finally receive God's free gift of grace. When we really stop and think about our salvation, and let's be honest, we don't do that often enough, but when we do, when we think about our salvation, when we think of how God redeemed us in Christ before we were ever born, how at just the right time, and you know this, how at just the right time he came and got us and worked in your life, these thoughts should make us the humble 
glad. We rejoice because the good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves people who cannot save themselves. He does for us what we could never do for ourselves. That is David's message. That is David's gospel. That is the gospel according to the Old and New Testaments. I know I say this often, but I don't think it can ever be overstated. All the other religions, all the other world systems today are at the end of the day just pious advice. Do these things, perform these deeds, perform these rituals, and you will live or the world will love you or you'll be reincarnated as something better or whatever, you'll be okay. Those other religions appeal to those who are already put together, those who come from good homes and have financial stability to give, to study, and to meditate. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is for the poor in spirit. It is God doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that's why David says the humble and the poor and the empty rejoice. It is the one religion, the only one, that is actually for losers, self-identified losers. And that is why, even in the New Testament, it held a special appeal for the tax collector, the prostitute, and the criminal on the cross. It causes the desperate, it causes the humble to rejoice. Finally, in verse 3, and this is so important, Notice how this work of God inside him is not static but living. First, in verse 1, it moved in him, changing his mouth, establishing permanent praise in his mouth. Then it moved through his heart, breaking his dependence on himself and causing him to boast only in God. Then lastly, verse 3, it comes out in a public call to worship. Look at verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. David understands that the salvation he has received personally and transformatively has public implications for the whole people of God. Our Americanism, our Americanism makes it easy for us to notice personal transformation and heart transformation. So we eagerly note David's growth in praise in verse 1, and we eagerly note his boast, his pure boast in God in verse 2. But if we're not careful, we can miss what is staring us right in the face. David does his theology. He does his praise for the church. He calls the whole church to join in and to participate fully in his new systematic theology. Puritan theologian Joel Beakey asks this question, where is theology to be done? This is a man who trains pastors. Where is theology to be done? Here's his answer. He says, in the church. And this answer pairs wonderfully with verse 3, doesn't it? What God has done for David is now leveraged for the whole body of Christ. Beakey writes, The study of theology, apart from a deepening oneness with Christ's church, is contrary to God's will. 
Our understanding of theology grows in spiritual insight when we live in community with other believers. And so David says, come, let us exalt together. Let us praise together. Come rejoice in what God has done and taught to me. Paul, the Apostle Paul, captures this dynamic perfectly in Colossians 3, verse 16. He says to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, when we read that as Americans, our instinct is, that's great. That's about me and my quiet time and my personal walk with Lord. No, you've cut it off. That's just the beginning. Because what does Paul immediately say? Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And that's why I'm calling this first stanza, verses 1 through 3, a call to worship. And many psalms, if not most of the psalms, have them, as does our service this morning. A call to come as a group, as a body together to complete our joy by sharing our joy in what God has done for us. But you may be asking yourself this morning, why does that matter? Surely the important thing is that we are changed personally, individually. After all, we cannot add to God's glory. So why does God care so much about our corporate response? C.S. Lewis in his little book on the Psalms thought that it mattered, and it mattered a lot. Joy, he wrote, joy is not complete until it manifests in praise. Here's what Lewis wrote. He said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It is frustrating to have discovered a new author and not to be able to tell anyone how good he or she is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur. And then to have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than a tin can in the ditch. To hear a good joke and find no one to share it with. The Scotch Catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Praise and invitation to praise complete the joy of David's experience. Now step back with me for a moment. We've briefly studied a remarkable call to worship that begins this remarkably rich psalm. David has experienced radical deliverance, and it's changed his worship, putting praise permanently in his mouth. And it has changed his heart, reinforcing to him that God is his only boast, his only trust. And now he believes it should change the whole church. Now, on the surface, that might sound to us a little arrogant. What if you're here today and you feel completely defeated and devastated? Why should David's happiness 
dictate your reaction thousands of years later? How can something God did so long ago make any real difference in today's ocean of sorrows? The only answer to that question is for you to understand what it means to be a king. David is Israel's king, Israel's anointed one. The word is Messiah. So what happens to the king, what happens to the Messiah is never private. Now, we don't have kings in America, so it's easy for us to miss something that would be obvious to most everyone else who's lived in history. When you have a king, a king who reigns by divine appointment, that king is the state. His body is the nation. What happens to him happens to us all. This is why when David sins on one occasion, there's a plague in the whole land. He represents the nation. He is its head. So David is not being an egotist here, as if he wants everyone to celebrate with him because he's in a good mood. He's not some arrogant king calling on the peasants to rejoice in their misery because he is happy at least. Rather, he is right, he's right to anticipate that his personal deliverance from danger will bless the nation itself. That what God has done for the king, what God has done for the king, he is doing for all those who are in him. This is one of those places then where David is once more transformed before our eyes, if we have eyes to see. He's no longer just another ancient king. He is the priest king of Jerusalem. As king, his salvation is the salvation of his people. As priest, his praise is their psalm, their anthem. He leads them in victory as king. He leads them in worship according to the order of Melchizedek as priest. As priest, his psalm is their psalm, and it must be. And that pattern, brothers and sisters, is no accident. For here we have come so close, haven't we, to Christ whose victory is our victory and whose praise is now our psalm, a new song that we share with each other and the world constantly in our mouth. In all Jesus' acts, in all his acts, he represented us and acted on our behalf as king. So when God the Father raised him from the dead, that was our resurrection too. So Paul can say again and again in his letters that we are in Christ, in him, and that we have been crucified with him, buried with him, and raised with him. And indeed, he is the first fruits, the first resurrected believer, but certainly not the last, for we will be raised yet in him bodily. These three verses come home. They come home only as they arrive in the mouth of the resurrected Christ. It is the spirit of Christ in David that wrote these things. And so only when you put them into the mouth of Christ can we understand the full weight of the deliverance mentioned here. It is Christ in his resurrection glory that says, I will bless the Lord at all times. My boast is in the Lord. And most important for us today, a precious promise. Christ says, 
The humble will hear it and be glad. What has happened to the king has happened to the people. Verse 8 then invites us to come and discover more deeply what the Messiah has already learned. David says, oh, taste then, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Let us take that sweet invitation with us now and come as the humble and needy to this table. Amen. Let us pray. Father, how we thank you for our King of beauty and King of glory, the Lamb who bears his wounds in heaven and has a heart for us poor sinners here. We thank you that what has happened to him has happened to us, that we have been crucified with him and raised with him, and that no manner of suffering in this life can remove that word of praise from our lips or extinguish that bright light in our hearts. So cause us to rejoice in him always, to make our boast in you alone. For just as you raised the son from the dead, so you have raised us spiritually from the dead now and will raise us physically in the age to come. And may we take that message to the world and especially to the congregation that we might together magnify your name. Bless us now, Father, as we come to this table that we might once again taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.